And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Soccer Show and our weekend review. Today we're looking at Liverpool's big community shield win, Bayern Munich's even bigger DFL Super Cup win and we lead with the biggest win of them all. Ladies and gentlemen, it went away for 56 years and on Sunday July 31st 2022 it finally came home. This royal throne of kings and queens, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, (laughs) this happy breed of women, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, I'm still going, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat of defence to a house against the envy of less happier (laughs) lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this is England. Angela Merkel, Heidi Klum, Marlene Dietrich, Claudia Schiffer, Anne of Cleves, Hildegard of Bingen, Steffi Graf, my own grandmother, your girls, took a hell of a beating. My name is Ryan Bailey. England are world champions of Europe. Joining me to talk about it is a man who brings us joy like a tiny toy car, brings the world joy as it delivers the match ball at major championships. Woo, Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello, man, I gotta give you this. That is that is a hell of an introduction, a hell of a way to commemorate uh, that victory yesterday for the England women's team. Ryan Bailey, well done, sir. Way to kick us off, my friend. People say I'm not classy, but there's me quoting Shakespeare at the start of a podcast, Taylor, so there you go. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone has ever said you're not classy. I think everyone will agree <laughs> that you are quite classy, just also a little bit basic at the same time, which is maybe a good, like... Uh, metaphor for that that England women's team who were classy and amazing throughout this tournament but then at the end had to be a little bit pragmatic and basic to get that result done in the final minutes more on that very shortly Tay-Tay uh, joining us a man who wasn't quite old enough to appreciate the USWNT class of 99 but now he can appreciate that vibe courtesy of the Lionesses Joe Lowry hello to you I'm still trying to shake off the cobwebs of that intro good gracious that was really impressive and also just, uh, I don't even have the words to describe it, Ryan. Good job. Congratulations to you, seriously, and in England. That was an incredible game to watch. Less so, honestly, for the game, although it was fun, and we'll talk about that, but more so for the scenes afterwards and the celebration you always get after moments like that. But this one did feel different, and I think there's a lot of congratulations in order. Thank you very much. Totes emotion in the Bailey household, we'll say, Joseph. Totes emotion all around. We'll get to that shortly because we have to introduce our final member of our pack, a man who loves the England women's team so much, he did the exact same thing that all of them have done. He dyed his hair blonde. Graham Ruffin, hello. <laughs> hello, Ryan Bailey. I mean, actually, what happened was I decided I was going to show my support for Sweden against England in, in the Women's Euro semi-finals. I just did it uh, a few days too late. 
Yeah, well, yeah, to be fair, I didn't think that was quite the inspiration because you need a ponytail as well as dye blonde hair to be Team England, so you're only halfway there, I guess. Well, I guess you haven't seen the back of my head. Oh, is it all business in the front party in the background? <laughs> as always. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful stuff. All right. Um, I'm sure you're very, very happy about England's victory at Wembley Stadium, Graham. We should probably kick off <sighs> with that. Of course, England getting the win over Germany 2-1 after extra time. This, guys, uh, was a replay of the 2009 final. That day, Germany triumphed six goals to two. Not quite so many goals in this game, of course. That game, gents, played in 2009, was played in Helsinki on a Thursday evening in September with 15,000 people in attendance. This one, of course, full house at Wembley Stadium, uh, 87,192 people, an all-time tournament record for UEFA, men or women, and 17.9 million watched in the UK alone. Graham, that's nearly a third of the population. Yeah, that's big. That's pretty big, isn't it? It was that that is, that is a huge TV audience. Obviously, I, I know in in the US, maybe that might not seem so large. Maybe that's a a rerun of uh, of the Hills or something on a Tuesday night, <laughs> seventeen million. But in the UK, population of sixty million, that is an absolutely giant TV audience. The biggest TV audience ever for a women's football match. I think it's the biggest TV audience of twenty twenty two. It's uh, it's pretty reflective of how this tournament and this match uh, caught the imagination. Definitely so. I think I was taken aback at how emotional I was after the game as well. I felt very nervous throughout. But when when it finally hit, when the final whistle went and an England team had broken the curse of beating Germany and not taking it to penalties and doing it at Wembley, 56 years uh, since um, since the World Cup in 66, obviously we have beaten England, uh, beaten Germany uh, before, but not in quite these same circumstances. I just I just had a little cry, if I'm honest. It was it was beautiful. It was a really beautiful moment, and uh, I, was, I was there. Not only like my mum is here at the moment. I, I was with my wife and my two kids as well, my two daughters, and they were hooked. Everybody was watching this whole game, and everybody's yeah. been watching this whole tournament. I just thought it was wonderful. I think I saw a tweet to the effect of you know uh, someone else saying, "I've got a daughter. She doesn't have to love the beautiful game, but it's really good to know that she knows that's possible now. She can be a princess. She can be a lioness." And I think Graham, that's incredible, isn't it? It is, and and this really has the potential to change the the landscape of of women's soccer in England. I think the landscape has already shifted in the last few years. We've seen a lot of the WSL clubs play in front of big crowds. Those games are more of those games are on live television. The BBC has highlights on a Sunday night, which is a big deal. So things have changed in the last few years, but this is this is only going to accelerate things further. And and I found so many moments in this tournament just really inspirational the the number of young girls and boys as well in in the crowds and the way some of the the older players who had to to fight so hard against the tide earlier 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 in their careers finally found out what it's like to have that spotlight to have 17 million people watching and 90,000 people at, at, at Wembley and I thought that was really nice and you could you could see what it meant to some of the former England players as well on the BBC broadcast who didn't get to experience this sort of thing as players Farah Williams and uh, Alex Scott, who were both involved in the, in the BBC broadcast, they were in tears. Alex Scott at, at points was actually struggling to talk and they had to kind of cut away from her because she just couldn't get her words out. And Jill Scott came over to Farah Williams. She's obviously one of the, the older players in the team at the moment. She comes over to Farah Williams after the game and she puts her medal around Farah Williams's neck 
almost as a sign of the role that, that players like Farrah Williams have played in getting England to this point. And yes, there's still a lot of progress to be made. And Ian Wright was really good at summing that up in, in the broadcast as well. And he, he called on the WSL in particular to make it easier for people to go to games, these weird kickoff times that they have. And the fact that you can't buy tickets as an away fan, you need to sign up to the home uh, club's membership to buy tickets. So there's there's a lot of barriers that still need to come down, but you can't you can't ignore the culture shift that is that has happened. And it was it was a real landmark tournament for women's football in this country. And and the fact that the Lionesses were able to just cement that with a victory in such momentous fashion was 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 incredible. I'm going to read out just finally. I'm just going to read out the the, the way that Gabby Logan, who is the the host of women's football in, in the UK on the BBC. She had a brilliant sign-off, which just summed up so so much of what made this tournament special. So she, she finished with, the Lionesses have brought football home. Now it's down to the rest of us to make sure it stays here. You think it's all over? It's only just begun. And I thought that was a brilliant way to sign off. Absolutely fantastic. Taylor, I feel like in some ways, and I don't mean to de- be detrimental to English soccer at all, but it's, this is kind of the English game catching up with the US game. When I first moved to the States yeah. over a decade ago, I was very surprised at the, the women's soccer infrastructure in how far it is. Obviously, there's there's economic reasons for it with the various collegiate rules uh, in the States and how advanced the women's game is. But this this felt like we've almost caught up with that stage. It's just, it shows to me, Taylor, that investment in women's soccer works. Yeah, I mean, even like on a very basic level, the parallel of Chloe Kelly, like ripping off the shirt, like with the sports bra on a woman not being sexualized, but just it being like a moment of euphoria and glee connects directly to Brandy, Brandy Chastain doing the same thing when the U.S. women in 99 win it in 99. And to me, there is that there is like a connection there. There is this feeling that for me, I watched that 99 final and it did pull me into the U.S. women's national team in a way that like kind of the men didn't because the men didn't win at that point and kind of still haven't uh, or definitely still haven't won the World Cup that is but it's just it it's a it was a sort of landmark event I remember it being appointment viewing in 99 and I remember people sticking with it because they connected with that team and that moment and that moment of euphoria and victory and I imagine that will be the case for so many people in England with the way they win with the historical connection to the opponent as well but at the same time none of the sort of baggage of that connection coming to play Uh, a thing that I have heard many times from many different uh, points would be that like there was no 10 German bombers there was no singing about anything like that instead the stands were full with kids and that's not really the case on the men's side and there's a there are financial reasons for that there's also cultural reasons for that and so for so many like just people that wouldn't otherwise get to attend a final to be there and see their heroes win. It has to be this major shift. And I think Graham is right to point out not only the importance of this moment, but also the importance of the people who came before. Um, Michael Cox, talking about everything that Serena Wiegmann did uh, for The Athletic, pointed out that like Hope Powell, when she was the England manager, made all of the youth teams start playing 4-3-3, including the senior team, to kind of bed in that system and get everybody on the same page. And you look at the way they won this tournament and the way they played, and you have to wonder if the people that came before, how, like, how much of this would happen if those people hadn't made those sacrifices, made those Not decisions. 
Yeah, not Phil Neville. We don't need to talk about him. We can skip right over him. But this I just is think... what happens when you sack Phil Neville. <laughs> yeah, David Beckham is the real MVP of this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, Serena Vigman to enter Miami. I'm here for it. Uh, I don't know if I would do that to her. Let's get her to uh, another program somewhere else. But I just, I just think I'm really happy to hear about what it meant to Ryan and Ryan shedding a tear because I, Leah Williamson tweeting or not tweeting screaming we effing did it uh i'm censoring for our listeners but you get the gist like that got me like i think maybe because like silly as it is it was in english and so when i can understand what they're saying and it like just to see the emotion and know what what's happening behind that emotion it was just a really powerful moment and uh made me very much in love with the game all over again yeah, uh, Leah Williamson on the BBC broadcast, uh, Graham, and I, Graham and I watching domestic broadcast, she just said, I tell you what, the kids are all right. And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely fantastic. We didn't get any swearies. Um, Joe, what 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 was the uh, US broadcast like? Fill me in on it. Um, have you been pleased with the way the tournament's been broadcast? Um, I've heard Emma Hayes getting quite a lot of praise for her for her um, US uh, analysis. Emma Hayes is phenomenal. And and I, I think she brings real value to literally any soccer game that a major broadcast network can get her involved in. I really enjoyed that. I, I thought the broadcasts were good. I always appreciate the visual and how aesthetically pleasing a lot of them were. The surfaces looked very good. The color contrast, this sounds like mm-hmm. a ridiculous thing, but as someone who watches a lot of Major League Soccer and other domestic soccer, the color contrast and, and just the visual and the bright colors on the screen and everything kind of balancing itself out was was perfect. So I thought ESPN did a, a pretty good job. I appreciated them making all of these games available on ESPN+. Plus. I don't have a whole lot to complain about on, on the whole, and I thought this tournament in general was just lovely to watch. Really good aesthetically. A lot of good soccer was played, maybe less so at times in this particular game, but that's kind of how finals go. And I, I think this was ultimately, though, a really nice sending off point for this England team as they went through and actually won this won this trophy. Joe, two things for me on that one. First of all, you're dead on pointing out the color contrast. ESPN <laughs> always seems to get that right. They do a really good job with of color With non-MLS balancing. things. Yes, correct. Uh, yeah, that's right. But I think I contrast that with like not trying to really throw stones here, but Fox sometimes I think gets it off or the colors are just a little bit more drab and it doesn't bring out that electrifying atmosphere. From the coverage standpoint yesterday – Ian Dark tried very, very, very hard to remain neutral, but about it on mute. <laughs> 15 minutes into the second half, probably before that, but that was where it got really obvious. He just kind of dropped all pretense. Like, there's that one where an English, I forget which English player it was, like, comes in sort of out of control from behind, studs raised, and it's just a foul, no card. And he said, he's, I can't tell if it was tongue in cheek, but he was like, audibly angry that that was given as a foul he, that's when he dropped the game's gone like that that level of of anger for a, a call in that moment i think he he did his best to stay neutral well by the end was pretty actively rooting for england yeah. i think julie Foudy, by the, by the, the end, same by the end yeah. by the end he was chanting the referees a w word <laughs> i mean it wasn't far off and i can't really like I can't really criticize that too much because much as we want our commentators to remain neutral, I'll put it this way. If if the U.S. men are somehow winning the World Cup uh, this fall, I don't expect John Strong and Stu Holden to be like placid and neutral and not be like, oh, my God, this is happening. Like that. I think I can see how, especially as Ryan said in the beginning, it's been 56 years. You're going to support your team, even if you are the most professional broadcaster. I think that's still going to get through. And in some ways that elevates things, even if maybe German-American listeners weren't loving that so much. 
Yeah, let's let's let Ian have that one. I think Tay Tay, that's okay. Um, of course, England two, Germany one after extra time. Ella Toon opening the scoring with McGull getting the equaliser in the 79th minute, and then uh, Ms. Chloe Kelly uh, with the winner in extra time. Take a little pause before taking her Chastain moment, uh, the iconic moment as it was. Joe, let's talk a little bit about the soccer itself. Uh, it seemed to me that England were kind of dominating at the start, first 15 minutes or so. Then it got super choppy for most of the rest of the game, uh, as you'd expect from a final. And there was me at halftime and beyond thinking England should have made the most of that opening 15 minutes because mm. this is Germany and we're going to pay for it. I don't necessarily think England dominated in those first, team, first 15 minutes. I think there were chances on both sides. And really the opening stages of, of this game, though, Ryan, this is where I do agree with you were much more open, and there were opportunities there to be taken, and neither team really ended up taking advantage of them. There was some fun end-to-end stuff early on, England with some of the ball trying to find their way through Germany and, and the same the other way around, and it felt like in that moment that we were set for a really entertaining final that, that certainly wasn't going to go to extra time or anything like that, and then midway through the first half, and I, I messaged this in the Slack channel, everyone sort of remembered that this was a final, and, and we got to the point <laughs> where Teams were a lot more cagey, and everyone was suddenly hesitant to commit too many numbers forward. And Germany was sending a bunch of crosses, and we haven't even mentioned yet them playing without Pop, their their star number nine in this game. Missing her was a huge blow for Germany in their yeah. front line. They, they were not nearly as effective in the attack without Alexander Pop. She was injured in, in warm-ups, had a little bit of, a, of an injury there, and missed this game, and Leah Schuler started in her place. And it wasn't the same German team. They couldn't get away with as much of those those hopeful crosses into the box. So then you get into the second half, and things actually do start to open up a little bit in the second half. I thought Germany, in in the first 10 minutes or so, was pretty clearly the better team in that stage of the game, forcing Sarah Wiegmann into multiple substitutions to try and wrestle some momentum back. I believe those subs came in the 56th minute. So whenever that happens for me when I'm watching a game, if there's a sub or multiple subs before the 60th minute, to me it's a sign of, okay, we had a plan, and that plan is very much not working, and we need to change something now. It's an earlier cadence to making some of those substitutions than we see in a lot of games. Wiegmann made those changes. England do wrestle back a little bit of control. They get a goal. Germany equalize, and then we go back into the, a little bit of the caginess towards the end of that second half, and we go to extra time, and the winner happens later on in the second period of extra time. It was a fun back-and-forth game, despite a lot of those more – uh, boggy kind of moments with a lot of fouls and some questionable <laughs> yeah. refereeing decisions. There was a lot of that, but still, I feel like the second half and even parts of extra time rescued this game back from what I thought it might be towards the end of the first half. I, I very much enjoyed the refereeing performance, just purely from a chaos <laughs> Come on. point of view. There was some really, thankfully nothing that actually affected the, the final result or the scoreline, but there were some really peculiar decisions in there. Um, I, yeah, it was, it was chaotic. And I thought that that kind of reflected just the general quality of the match. There have been some excellent matches in this tournament. I think the technical quality as a whole has been very, very high. The first half of the Germany-France semi-final might have been the, the best showcase of quality and technical ability we saw at this tournament. But strangely for two high-quality teams, I, I didn't think this match was a particularly high-quality one. Um, and maybe we should have expected it, given that finals tend not to be the best matches, but it was it was pretty scrappy and at points, and there were a lot of loose touches as well, and maybe there was there were some nerves in there too. I mean, that, that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. It was a hugely enjoyable match, and even in the first half, which was quite cagey at points, as you say there, Joe, you, you could sense the occasion and the tension, and it was still very watchable. It's, it's an England-Germany final, after all. 
but I, I think it's fair to say both teams played better over the course of the tournament than they, they did on Sunday. Yeah, that's fair to say. Taylor, let's dig into Germany a little bit. Um, we had Oberdorf getting the, is it the youth player of the tournament or the player of the tournament at the end of the, at the, end Young of the game? Young player, I believe, yeah. Yeah, very deserving. We, uh, you pointed her out, I believe, as a player to watch in this game from our uh, preview. Um, so your thoughts on Germany and, and Pop being out, a late uh, exit from the starting lineup, uh, getting injured in the warm, as we said. How much of a difference maker would Pop have been in this lineup, do you think, Taylor? And also, I thought maybe her absence, maybe the was due to this or, or contributed to the fact that um, there was less of a press, certainly from the start yeah. from Germany. And they just seem like, well, even we can talk about it later, but England doing keep away of the ball in the corner flag at the end. Amazing. I didn't think that a Germany, the Germany I saw in the semis or the quarters would have tolerated it as much as they did there. Yeah, I think I've, I've heard a couple different podcasts. Uh, I did a lot, a lot of podcasts listening uh, this morning uh, talking about how Leah Schiller comes in. She does a similar thing to Pop. So it's not as though the Germany game plan was fundamentally different. But I think that sort of doesn't give Alexandra Pop the credit that she deserves for how important she is to this team. And it's not as though she does something like light and like it's like night and day different from anybody else. It's just that she is the focal point of the attack for this team. She, there was a decent chance she could have won the Golden Boot if she scored in this one. I think she would have been the second player besides uh, Michelle Platini had she have scored to have scored in every single game at a Euro. And I, I think to, to have that player in there, it just immediately gives you more confidence. You know that she can create something. You know she has that, as we talked about in the semi, um, the semifinal review show, you know she has that ability to find those little pockets of space, to find those little gaps, to create space for herself and then attack that space. And I just think she makes it difficult for defenders to get comfortable. I think she absolutely would have been a more disruptive force. It is really disappointing to not have seen her in this game, especially as a neutral, because I think it would have elevated things a bit more. I still think Serena Wiegmann, with everything we now know about her level of preparation, the way she game plans for every possibility, Ian Dark talking about how she had game planned in case she got COVID and what would happen and who would take over what responsibility. I think there would have been plenty of plans in place to try to nullify Pop, but that that injury took her out immediately, I think did some of England's work for them. And I think it would have been a different game. I don't know if Germany would have ended up winning, but it was definitely a sort of a, a down point to start the match. I think Leah Schiller did everything she could, but when you're talking about a replacement to your most important player, I think you have to note that that probably changes the way the game's going to go. Yeah, I, I think the whole first half, to be honest, was informed slightly, at least in part, by the injury to Pop. From a German point of view, because it changes the focus of their attack and that Schuller is is a lot more likely to drop deep and try and make runs in behind, and that's not... I mean, Pop does a little bit of that, but she's she's more of a, a physical threat. She gets on the end of crosses. She has that aerial threat. So the, Germany's kind of whole attacking game plan is about overloading those wide areas and yeah. then getting deliveries in. They then don't have anyone to get on the end of those deliveries or certainly nobody as effective as Pop. And I, I think it was... It was pretty telling that Gwyn, who was who was getting a lot of the the crosses into the box for Germany and in, in those wide areas, she didn't complete a single cross from seven in the whole match. Now you could argue that maybe she had a, a poor game and the, the deliveries weren't good enough, but I think it also says a lot for well, who was she aiming for? Who were those crosses for if Pop wasn't in in the game? 
And I can't imagine Voss Tecklenburg, the, the, the German head coach, I can't imagine she was able to provide much instruction to Schuller and her team as a whole after Pop's withdrawal because it seemed to happen just a few minutes before the start of the match. The match was literally kicking off, or actually the players were coming out of the tunnel, I think about three or four minutes before the start of the match, when the BBC broadcast was saying, oh, by the way, and Alexandra Pop isn't in the Germany team, she's had, a, she's had an injury. So that suggests it happened really, really late. I don't know how much, as I say, how much time Voss Tecklenburg had to kind of change, even if she changes the focus of the team, does she have enough time to communicate that to her players? And I think that might well have contributed to Germany's first half performance where, yes, they didn't play badly per se, but the press wasn't quite as precise. The usual cohesion wasn't there. They were a bit distracted, if you ask me. And so it's not surprising that in the, at the start of the second half, German, that's probably the best period of the match that Germany had because Vostecklenburg has had those 15 minutes to get some instruction into her players. She didn't, she, maybe she didn't have that before the start of the match. So it's, it is a shame as a neutral that Pop wasn't able to play. She was, she's been, she was one of the stars of the tournament. She was also one of the stories of the tournament, given that due to injuries, she'd never played in a, in a Euros before. She felt she had been robbed of that opportunity. Had the tournament been played last year as it was originally scheduled, she would have missed it through injury. Um, she wasn't guaranteed to start for this Germany team either, so she was one of the storylines of the tournament, and it's a shame that that was that that final, the finale was taken away from her. All right, we need to talk about the England performance. We need to talk about the refereeing performance, the goalkeepers. <laughs> We're going to talk about Prince William hugging people. Plenty more to come <laughs> after this very short break. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking about England's victory in Euro 2022. Feels good to roll that one off the tongue. Feels wonderful indeed. Where should we go next? Serena Vigman, Graham. Um, has a pretty good record in this tournament and in recent tournaments. Yeah. Uh, there was talk of her maybe um, being lined up for a, a bigger gig, should, should such a thing exist. She is England manager after all. Uh, but your thoughts on her and how she made this happen? I think we all knew that England had the talent to win a major tournament. We, we knew that at, well, I, I, maybe I'm going a little bit far saying at the last World Cup they could have won it, but they certainly had the talent to go far in that tournament. They certainly had the talent to win the last Euros and the, and the Olympics last year with Team GB. But the big difference was that in those past tournaments, and I say this in jest, but also in uh, being in, entirely sincere, they had Phil Neville in charge, whereas this time they had Serena Wiegmann, who is an incredible manager. And I feel a little bit foolish that really until this tournament, obviously I, I watched some of the last Euros and, and, and the last World Cup, so I was familiar with that Netherlands team and a lot of their players, but really I'd kind of overlooked Serena Wiegmann a little bit. And obviously now she, she becomes the England manager. When she gets appointed, she gets put in that British spotlight, which is obviously native to me. So I, I learn a lot more about her and certainly during this tournament, I've learned a lot more about her. And she is just, she's just sensational at what she does. The, the sense of composure she has brought to this team 
when things went against England in this tournament, like the Spain quarterfinal, like when Germany equalised in, in this match in the final, they just had a sense of calm that is not particularly common when you're watching an England national team. And that is one of the thing, one of the most striking things about this, the, the, the Lionesses compared to the Lions, that the men's team, is just this the sense of self-assurance that England just kind of knew they were going to win this match. That's not to say they were complacent, but they, they just had, they had all the answers. And I think that that has to come from Wiegmann because it's, it's, uh, it's very different to the way England used to be under Neville and even before that, where they could be a little bit frantic and a little bit panicked and there was always a defensive mistake in them. That was always the, the criticism of England. And Wiegmann struck the perfect balance between the consistency of always picking the same team but also making changes when they were needed. So both goals in the final were scored by substitutes. Alessio Russo makes a difference against Sweden. The changes against uh, Spain in the quarterfinal contributed to, to, to England coming from behind to win that game. And the way that Wiegmann has made that whole, that, that squad a, a unit as a whole was very impressive. So Bethany England, who I don't think played a single minute in the whole tournament, I always feel sorry for those players in, in major tournaments who don't get on the pitch. But she is she's one of the first players, if you watch the full-time whistle, she's one of the first players to sprint onto the, the pitch in celebration when the final whistle blew. So clearly she'd been made to feel by Wiegmann that she did have a role to play in that squad, fight, mm. despite the fact that she, she didn't have a visible role in that team on, on the pitch. So there's just so much about Serena Wiegmann that says to me she's perfect for this, this England role. There's obviously a World Cup next year. That has to be the next aim. All this talk of a bigger role for Sina Wiegmann. I've seen people saying, get her in a Premier League job. Obviously, that would be boundary-breaking. And maybe I do want to see that at some point in the future. But this England team still have another step to go. Yeah. And and uh, superpowers like the USA, I think, should be pretty wary of yep. England because Eng England is, you know, maybe the quintessential soccer nation, as much as it pains me to say that. And if, if women's football is now deeply embedded in that country and they have a team that has not just got a connection with that that nation, but also has been funded and has the quality and has the manager, that's a real threat. So there is certainly more for Wiegmann to achieve with this England team. Okay, I, I have two thoughts, and I don't want to forget the second one, so I'm going to lay out the, the quick bullet points here. One of them first is on, on Wiegmann and England, and the other one is maybe a more general point about the rising change in women's international soccer. So first, on, on Wiegmann. Graham, I, I think you're spot on with a lot of your praise of her. She did a really good job in this tournament. And I'm I'm frankly impressed and surprised at how well her, yeah, I don't really rotate my squad thing actually worked with some early subs happening pretty regularly in the second half. And maybe that was enough to give some key players rest. And otherwise, credit to the players for just being incredibly durable in this tournament. But Wiegmann, one of the things that's left me the most impressed with her and, and really I tend to to want to credit players more and more because my natural inclination is to just think about the managers and, and players as chess pieces. But that's not the reality. So credit to the players as well for their ability to be a really well-rounded team. I think on the international level, because of how little time you get with your players, we've talked about this plenty in the past, it is hard to communicate tactical ideas because you never have them for very long. And I thought England displayed a pretty impressive variety of a tactical ideas, and, and they showed a number of different ways to win games. I don't think this was their best game of the tournament by far. We've already kind of talked about that. But still, even in this game, you get a mixture of them pressing high up in the fourth minute, as early as that, and, and even earlier in the game. England's pressing and trying to get the ball, get on the ball to create danger and destabilize Germany. They're pressing up on the goalkeeper, and, and Germany had some issues playing out in this game. Then in the attack, there's a mixture of some long goal kicks to play over Germany's press and something of a 4-2-4 structure 
uh, with Frank Kirby forming a 44 in that front line against Germany's back line. There's some nice rotations. And, and throughout this tournament, and we even think about this back in the semifinals, England displayed some really nice possession play. And it's not rocket science. They weren't doing a ton of really crazy Pep Guardiola stuff. But they had some nice sequences with really well-disciplined off-ball movement. I didn't think there was enough of it in this game. But on the whole, in this tournament, there was a lot of of good work done by players moving off the ball, which I think is one of the signs of a well-drilled possession team. And I wouldn't even qualify England as just a possession team. I think they can be dangerous in all sorts of different ways. So I was impressed by that. And then, Graham, you mentioned there sort of England being a real threat. And that's that's kind of been the underlying tone of so much of the coverage of this victory and almost even from the start of this tournament of thinking about what it could be for England. And that's a totally justifiable angle. I even want to zoom it out a little bit more, though, as England may be the flagship right now for Europe after this trophy win. But really, this tournament, and maybe my biggest takeaway from this entire tournament, is thinking about how good and deep Europe is right now in international soccer. And and this has been true on the men's side for a long time. Now it is very clear to me that it is true on the women's side as well. You have England coming out here and winning this tournament against a group of very, very good teams like Germany and Spain. If they were fully healthy, I think they would have caused more issues in this in this tournament. Sweden didn't have their best semifinal game, but still a dangerous team. Austria coming out and having a little bit of, a, of an emergence. There's other teams as well. Norway didn't necessarily thrive, but the Netherlands, there's tons of quality here. It is very clear to me at this point that Europe is the deepest and most talented region in women's international soccer. And that was probably true before this tournament, but it is very clear now. It would not surprise me if we saw a string of World Cup winners coming from Europe and maybe the United States as well. I think they can be grouped into there. But in terms of depth and in terms of just playing the numbers game, if I have to pick one confederation to bank on for World Cups every single year, it is no longer CONCACAF. And by CONCACAF, I mean pretty much just the U.S. women's national team. It is now UEFA, and that is a, a real stark contrast. And I think, again, Taylor, I don't, I don't want to bring us back to the U.S. here, but thinking back to all the times we talked about the U.S. women's national team earlier this summer, yep. it is a reminder of how frustrating it is at times to watch that team for all the talent there is. It feels like, to me, they're missing a Sarah Wiegmann-level piece to bring them together. And I think if the U.S. isn't on their game very clearly – in Australia and New Zealand next year and less than a year from now when that tournament kicks off, they are going to be hit in the face by a, a cold slap of reality. I, th- I think yep. that's one of the most interesting things for me in a macro sense coming out of this tournament. I, I think it, there's no way, in my mind, it's really difficult. Maybe there's not no way, but it's very difficult, especially if you are the champion, the title winner, what, what have you, to prepare for a team that is no longer afraid of you. And I have to believe that England winning the Euros, if Serena Wiegmann is still there, will have the confidence going into that World Cup that if they come up against the United States, they're not going to back down. They're not going to be overawed by the opponent in front of them and the successes they've had. If anything, that's going to be extra motivation. And and I agree with you, Joe, that if you look at even just the way it's developing on a club level, I think the, the WSL is coming on leaps and bounds. You could talk about the teams in Spain and, and the money being put into uh, women's teams in Spain and Italy, even France. Like Those leagues are going to get better. There's going to be more money spent. There's going to be better talent development. And like as bad as it is to have to talk about, like look at the coverage of NWSL last year and what the stories were. And it was all about corruption and scandal and abuse. And it, and it, it's not, I think the U.S. has been fortunate in the sense that there hasn't been faster development 
earlier, but I think if if there's not an awareness that like, hey, this is kind of a shot across the bow that things need to change, there needs to be more money, there needs to be more progressive approaches to soccer in this country, I, I think the United States is in for a rude awakening. And so I don't want to, yeah, just stick with what this means for the United States, but that is a thing, Joe, that I kept wondering. Even like Vlatko's rotation and things like that versus Vigman sticking with her core group and knowing what she wanted from her team, that stands out. Because Vigman, like there's, there's the quote we talk about many, many times uh, from Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Like Serena Vigman seems like she probably has a plan for getting punched in the mouth and how you navigate that and how you deal with it. Because when Germany equalized, I think previous England teams and many other national teams would have felt like, well, that's it, and would have panicked, and there would have been a, you know, all, all hands on deck, we got to be defensive, we got to just see this one out, let's try to get the penalties and hope for the best. And I think England maybe were rattled a little bit, but I think you could see the way they played their way back into it. Changes were made, proactive changes at that. And I think by the end, England were justified winners and and then saw it out pretty expertly. And I, And I think... It's a testament to the coaching, to the players themselves, and then to the development of the game in the country. But also, yeah, I think in Europe that you're just getting stronger competition across the board. I think it's going to be a very interesting World Cup. I'm excited it's only a year away. Taylor, hearing you and Joe talking about the Europe catching up with the US, I'm just Seinfeld with the popcorn saying, that's a shame, sitting on the couch right now. <laughs> um, Graham, I think there might be a problem with your audio, Graham, because I think I heard you say earlier that England is the quintessential soccer nation, and I think you said it without irony or or with your teeth gritted, but um, we'll, uh, we'll test your audio now because I'll ask you about the refereeing. <laughs> I felt like the referee uh, who was from Ukraine in this one had some interesting sort of Mike Dean-esque moments, should we call them? Sort of um, lots and lots of yellow cards. I think there was one for Georgia Stanway early on for not much as far as I could see. Uh, there was a controversial decision for the potential handball for Germany in the 26th minute with that sort of goal mouse scramble. Um, so maybe, maybe we could call it general poor officiating in this one. And it broke up what was already a slightly choppy game, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely contributed to that in the first half. So Katerina Monzul is, is, is her name. And it, as I say, I'm I'm grateful it didn't actually kind of affect the the final outcome of the game or the scoreline or anything like that. But there was just such a puzzling lack of c- consistency. So Ober- Lena Oberdorf seemed to get away with two very um, cynical fouls without a booking, and and then the, the the kind of most confusing one was Georgia Stanway, who I, th- I think commits her first foul in the middle of the pitch. Now, okay, may- maybe that is a booking. You could argue that that is that a yellow card, but to nope. give to give to give her a booking but not Oberdorf a booking for two very similar fouls is just it was just bizarre and there was there was a, a couple of instances like that I can't remember which England player it was maybe it was Lucy Bronze but she gets tripped on the edge of the box as she's about to burst into the into the penalty area and yes yeah, she gets the free kick but in ordinary circumstances that that you know that would be a booking for a German player so it, as i say thankfully nothing too consequential but it was peculiar at times and tangentially related graham beth mead i thought who who had a good game who's a uh, golden boot she was tied with pop for goals but one on assists she had four assists um people often um compliment the women's game because there's not much of the play acting uh, on display but beth mead i thought i saw a little bit of that in my opinion, more play acting, more poop housery, the better. Yes. And there was a lot of poop housery <laughs> at the end of extra time yes. in this match where England wound down the clock in this game more effectively than I think I have ever seen a team wind down the clock. It was a masterclass. It kind of reminded me of, do you remember the City Atletico Madrid yes, Champions League? The Bruyne in I the can't corner. remember what that was. 
Yeah, it was either a quarterfinal or a, or a last 16 game, whatever that was at the Wanda Metropolitano. It was similar to that where England were just, they just spent, I think it was 11 minutes they basically spent in the corner of the pitch. And it wasn't just about running down the clock either. It was about disrupting things to such an extent that, that Germany, even when they did have the ball, just weren't able to build up any sort of momentum. And Wiegmann seemed to be in on the act as well because Germany, I think with two minutes to go, they get a throw in and there's kind of a sense, okay, Germany are finally going to go for an attack. And Wiegmann has indicated to the officials, I would like to make a substitution, please. And Nikita Paris comes on, I think it was, for the final two minutes. There is no way that that was, that was for the actual match yeah. itself or a tactical change. That was just to disrupt things further. So... As I say, yeah. uh, poop house, the poop house so was extreme, good. and I've got a lot of respect for that. <laughs> so good. Um, I, this is, if you'll forgive me, an extended metaphor for a moment. Uh, there, there's, I really enjoy the People versus OJ Simpson that miniseries, and they do a good job of of explaining how his defense from the outset, their entire plan was just to disrupt, that they were going to object oh, yeah. to everything. They were going to question everything. Why do you need this many hairs? Why isn't this hairs enough? And like the, the goal there to make the prosecution seem ridiculous, but also to just disrupt from the jump. And I felt like that's the, like the most direct comparison I can draw to what England did. That like Germany, they didn't even get a chance to have that one. Their, their best last chance was the goalkeeper hoofing it long 70 yards as the final whistle went. That was the closest they got to England's goal because England just from the minute they started time-wasting in that corner did such a good job of contesting every decision, taking their time, Chloe Kelly falling over and then acting like she'd been shot and then slowly getting back up. But then maybe I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go. Oh, we need to make a substitution. Oh, we need to change the taker. And yet at the same time, to my mind, not picking up bookings, not really. Get, I think they got one blast of a whistle of like, all right, let's get this underway. But aside from that, they just did an expert job of completely killing all of the energy to the point where I think a German player throws the ball at, uh, I forget, I think it was Lucy Bronze, maybe it was Jill Scott. Like they throw it at them to take a corner in a very frustrated way. And near the end, when the ball goes out, you can hear two German players scream in frustration that they still couldn't <laughs> get the ball back in. And it was just such a. A, a beautiful moment of like brutal momentum killing that uh, I found it, fully captivating. It was yeah. it was playing dumb but playing yes. so smart oh, yes. because there was there were moments well where said. I think there's a I can't remember if it was Lauren Hemp or Chloe Kelly, Kelly but it was a corner kick where she puts the ball down and it's outside the, the, the <laughs> yeah. little D and she's like oh, oh yeah it's outside the D oh I didn't realize that I, I'd put it there oh dear silly, silly me and she moves it back a little bit <laughs> and not of course enough. she knew exactly she moved what she was enough. doing that was yeah. amazing yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> do it again. Tell her twice. she had to do it again I think she was doing that the whole game to be fair uh, to her um, but a, a couple more highlights of some subs for me Alessia Russo coming on and as the Germans were passed a note with tactical instructions oh, yeah. her oh, yeah. taking a good old look over the shoulder I hope her German's good and she uh, she got what she needed from that uh, Jill Scott coming on and um, the, the, the lip reader is <laughs> getting treated to quite a treat when she was brought down at one point uh, with the slow-mo I don't know if that was on the US broadcast but um, oh, some yes, very agricultural language clearly from Jill Scott there who's now a hero she's an OB after all uh, and speaking of royalty uh, Prince William um giving hugs to certain players and he was very emotional i mean he's had a senior position at the fa for many years graham but i didn't have him <clears throat> pegged as quite as much of a <laughs> man of the people as he was there clearly so he had to go there but um very very good scenes all around one other thing i wanted oh, to I'm googling um, some things right now my friends the fire trucker lawyers we can't afford them taylor um the the uh, the, goal, the goalkeepers uh, yeah 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 uh, the goalkeepers taylor the goalkeepers no, we don't uh, we don't want to know where that trophy had been before he 
he brought oh, it onto the pitch. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. He was on his edge, edge of the seat for the whole game. Um, uh, <laughs> goalkeepers, the goalkeepers, the goalkeepers. Oh Merla Fromm's Taylor, um, by my count, five foot seven. Merla Fromm's Taylor, back on track, five foot seven, I believe, by my oh Googling. My uh, I thought uh-huh. that both goalkeepers had a great performance. Mary Earps as well was fantastic with that Jordan Pickford energy, mm. the tongue out, the, the encouraging the back line, the shouting her way through, the dancing on the, on the table at the end. Uh, I, I thought Taylor. I was really impressed with the goalkeeping in this mm-hmm. final from both ends. Yeah, I, no, no uh, argument for me. I thought Erps did her job. I thought Fromm's throughout the tournament had like the most you would see from her was sort of like one eyebrow raise of like, well, that was close. But she never really showed too much emotion, which I, I think I want as a goalkeeper. You want your goalkeeper to look like they've seen it all before, they've done it all before, they, they, they can handle everything thrown at them. Uh, so, yeah, I think credit to both goalkeepers. I am still reeling from uh, my most recent <laughs> Google results. So uh, thank bet, you for that, Ryan. A, a, <laughs> I bet too much composure from Froms with that strange kick save. Oh. Do you remember oh, that? Yes. Yeah, it's that time. wide, yeah. Yeah, what was that? That was bizarre. I see. I kind of like that. I like that because to me, it was just a she made the decision. And even if, like, maybe she could have like caught it, maybe she could have picked it up. But I think in that moment, she's made the choice. I'm just kicking it wide. That's what I'm going to do. Because how often have we seen a goalkeeper start to do one thing, then do another, and that's what leads to the miss kick or the mishandling, and then it's a goal. I kind of like the decisive action there. Yeah. And Mary Earps, Graham, also from the Pickford School of uh, collect the ball, fall to the ground for 10 seconds Got before to. gathering your thoughts. Love it. Yeah, I mean, Mary Earps is the goalkeeper that Jordan Pickford wishes that yeah. he was, just as Millie Bright is the central defender that Harry Maguire wishes he was as well. <laughs> well said, well said. And congratulations to England once again for being the world champions of Europe. As I say, I am very proud, very proud indeed. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, there were some Super Cups to talk about this weekend. More on those very shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're going to talk all about the Super Cups in England and in Germany. But Taylor, before we get yes. there, you had something to say. I did. I have a question for Graham. It was a question posed on Football Weekly to Barry Glendening, but Graham, I will ask you the same. Uh, with the England women winning the Euros, we do have a World Cup later this fall. If the England men were to win the World Cup, is this the worst year of your life? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has already been a pretty rough year. I mean, I, I used to suffer when England were, did win things, which isn't very often, but when they were good, I used to just suffer in silence. And then all of a sudden I was put on a podcast um, to talk about it all for a year <laughs> in, the, in the year that England made it to the final of a Euros, their first final since 1966. And then the following year, they won a major tournament for the first time in 56 years. So I'm great that I'm here to talk about it with you all and alongside an Englishman as well. A very smug one at that. Taylor, <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not a clear sign that Graham needs help he dyed his hair blonde the other yeah, day right so i think we kind of are already knew the answer to that question wow. but it was good of you to ask anyway yeah that, that was my plea for help yeah we, we actually evoked a midlife crisis out of you quite early for, for graham I'm, I'm quite proud of that but it's the reason you're not leaving this podcast ever because uh, you're a good luck chum that's all i can say <laughs> thanks i guess yeah you're very welcome graham, graham, right. when he says stuff like that just say chiellini that's all you have to say <laughs> I don't need to see it. He, he I say it. He uh, he lives rent free in Ryan's mind anyway. Yeah, You're right. Good that, call. That man haunts my dreams still, Joe. You didn't have to bring my mood down quite that much. Thank you very much, though. Um, <laughs> Liverpool. You just three. call him the Honorable Chiellini. That's what really gets him. Chiellini and Bank of California Stadium parking. <laughs> Liverpool three, Manchester City one. Let's move on to the Community Shield, the first ever one staged in July. Uh, I'd say, Joe, let's not talk about any Italian defenders for now, but let's talk about how maybe this one was a little more even than the scoreline suggested. For sure. For sure. Yeah, there were chances on both sides. Erling Haaland has that one chance. It's been going around a little bit that he he does not put on frame. There is so much quality in both of these teams. I even in a game like this, and I kind of fall into the category that it says the Community Shield and the German Super Cup and all of these different things, they are just a, a glorified preseason game money grab kind of deal. But that, I mean, even even in a game like that with City and Liverpool before the season, there's nothing really at stake, despite maybe what those who put on the Community Shield want us to think. I, I still can't look away from some of these games. I mean, they, they are so good at this point. There's such a high level in these matches, two great managers, two great teams, so much quality. It's always a great watch, even in a glorified preseason game like this one. I really enjoyed watching this match. I think there is also an interesting angle here with the idea that both of these teams have changed. They've had to iterate from last year to this year, and they both had to change over the course of their, a pep and clop have had to change over the course of their time in England, but we're seeing different high-profile attackers. We see Darwin Nunez uh, coming on for Liverpool. We see Erling Haaland starting for Manchester City. These are, are two forwards that are going to change in some ways how their teams play. I think with Haaland in particular, it's going to take some time. And, and Graham, you you also have thoughts on this, I know. Haaland is just a much different striker than anyone that's gotten real minutes under Pep Guardiola. He's a different striker than maybe anybody in the world right now because of how electric and how fast he is in short spurts. 
He's not as comfortable dropping in. And we've talked about this plenty in the past, so I don't need to really drone on about it. But I think that was one of the interesting things to me in this game, outside of just how good these games always seem to be, how much quality there is, is how it might take Holland a little bit of time yeah. at, at City to really bet in and for us to see the best version of this team. Yeah, I think sometimes you can you can think with a signing that maybe you are overthinking something. City are so good and Haaland are so good that I was very interested to see how he got on in this match just in case it worked. And you go, oh, I was being I was being a bit silly there and, and obviously Pep Guardiola knows how to, to get the best out of Haaland in this team. But he had just eight touches of the ball in the first half. City couldn't really get him involved. There were times when Kevin De Bruyne in particular was getting very frustrated at his movement. There was a point in the second half where... De Bruyne is carrying the ball. He's clearly looking for, I think he was looking for a run in behind from Haaland, which is kind of what you would expect from him. But Haaland is, Haaland's kind of dropped deep and alongside De Bruyne and not really given him an option. De Bruyne loses the ball. He looks at Haaland and he really throws his arms up in the air in frustration. And at that moment, I think to myself, okay, maybe we weren't overthinking it. This actually is going to take a bit of time. I have no doubt that Erling Haaland will score loads and loads of goals for Manchester City but it's def it's going to take some time this is a this is a, a different style from Guardiola Rory Smith wrote a piece for the New York Times recently and what he called Pep Guardiola 3.0 and it does feel like he's trying something different and Haaland signing is is a big part of that but it's it's clear there's still a lot of work to be done on that front Taylor I'm not sure I've seen many make the point that I'm about to but Manchester City only played two preseason friendlies and they did win them both to be fair Liverpool played five so we can't read too much into this game because they are a little further behind than Liverpool are, certainly in terms of preseason match mm -hmm. preparation. Uh, and I, I think g given that, this was a, not a terrible result for them. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a fair read on things because, and I'm aware of how this could come across as like oversimplifying or discourteous. I don't mean it that way. But the reality in my mind is that Liverpool play a very specific style under Jurgen Klopp that you you kind of know what they're going to do. It's going to be 4-3-3. It's going to be heavy metal football. It's going to be gagging pressing. It's going to be high intensity. And I think with that, they're able to have a very efficient scouting system because you can look at players and know the sort of, at a very basic level, the things you're going to need from those players. And if they can do those things well, then you have a good idea that they will fit into the system. And maybe with certain players, it takes a little bit more time. But I think that goes a long way towards explaining how Luis Diaz is able to literally and figuratively hit the ground running. And I, that's the same case with Darwin uh, Nunez in my mind. Even Thiago, to some extent, maybe a little bit more growing pains there, but has become just such an important player for this Liverpool team. And I contrast that with Man City, who Pep changes it up and likes to do like tinker between seasons and even in season will change things up or try different formations or just do little variations. And so I think that does require more time, more reps, more training. And when you have fewer games to prepare, I think that is going to make you look a little bit less sharp. I think you could see that not just in their attacking play, but even the the first, the opener for Liverpool, the Trent Alexander-Arnold goal that I think goes in even without the, the slight deflection. But when it goes wide to begin with, Jack Grealish is sort of uncertain if he's supposed to go close down or stay with Erling Haaland. Uh, uh, Alexander-Arnold hits that big switch 
Grealish goes central. Then Grealish goes sort of sprinting back out wide when the ball comes back around to Alexander-Arnold. Then he goes central and leaves TAA wide open to take that shot. And it, it just felt like the defensive spacing wasn't there. There wasn't that sort of connectivity that you would usually see from Man City. And I think we will get that as the season goes on. But those little breakdowns are enough for Liverpool, especially this Liverpool team, to punish you. And so uh, I think it's a good sort of... Uh, table setting for the season to begin because it is really going to be these two teams I think going toe-to-toe for the rest of the campaign as as much as Haaland did struggle in this game for City I thought Julian Alvarez coming on was was pretty impressive and that signing has sort of flown under the radar because of Erling Haaland and he's seen as sort of the secondary striker that they have bought but I get the feeling that he could be an important player for City, even this season. I think Guardiola is going to love him. Everything he does, he does it at pace. He's versatile. It seems like he takes on instructions well, and and he's just got that tenacious quality that so many of Pep's favourite players have. It reminds me of um, Alexis Sanchez a little bit, before Manchester United happened to Alexis Sanchez, (laughs) that is. But yeah, I th- I really liked what I saw from him. Obviously, it was only a twenty minute cameo or something like that, so I'm I'm not drawing any solid conclusions. But I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he's yeah. a more important player for City this season than maybe a lot of people have predicted. Graham, uh, I I feel like there was no greater representation of Pep Guardiola than Alvarez because he scores and it's disallowed first, right? Then it goes to VAR and then the goal is given. Yeah, and when it cuts back. Like, he, he clearly wants to be celebrating, but he's getting very animated, detailed instructions from Pep as that goal is given. And it just felt so on brand that, no, you cannot celebrate yet. I must first tell you that your spacing was one half yard too wide, and you must be here. Like, it was just <laughs> such a perfect encapsulation of who Pep Guardiola yeah. is. But also, to your point, Alvarez was listening and was focused on what he was saying and then did the celebration afterwards. So I think, yeah, that does yeah. fit in with him being a good Pep player. In that moment, you had Alvarez taking on very intense, detailed instructions from Pep. You had Haaland trying to engulf him with a bear hug. And you had, I don't know if anyone caught this, but Alexander-Arnold, when that ball goes into the back of the net, his back is facing the ball. He thinks the play has stopped. So you had everyone being a stereotype of themselves (laughs) in that moment. You love to see it. Um, Joe, I saw a bit of narrative around Jack Grealish in this game and discussion around Phil Foden um, replacing him and why Grealish is keeping Foden out of the team because he had a much better game in this instance. Do you see, uh, how do you see that situation in terms of Grealish and Foden fitting in this team? They both do very different things. I think that's pretty clear. So I think for Pep Guardiola, he has a choice about what he's looking for in any particular game. And he has the advantage of bringing a player off with a, not necessarily a contrasting skill set, but a different skill set. Jack Grealish is not really going to give you much movement in behind. He's much more of a playmaker and a guy who likes his touches than Foden. Although Foden also likes his touches, don't get me wrong. But Foden will give you a little more off the ball. He has more speed to get him behind. He can rotate centrally more often. We saw some of him playing in those central spaces last year for City, both in the league and in their Champions League run. So it, it, it totally, for me, is dependent on the individual game. I'm I'm curious to see what 2022 and, and heading into 2023 is going to look like for Jack Grealish because last year certainly wasn't his year in in the way that a lot of people hoped it, a lot of Man City fans hoped it would be coming over and joining City in the offseason. So I'm curious to see what that looks like. For for me, especially based off of what we've seen on the field, Phil Foden is the better option for City in a game that they absolutely have to win. 
I don't blame Pep Guardiola for tinkering a little bit and for trying to to see what he gets out of Grealish in a game like this against Liverpool. And I do think there will be a lot of high-profile games where Jack Grealish starts this season than, than maybe last season. And I do think he'll play a lot more this season than he did last season. Part of that is a, a squad roster construction thing and a contrast in this year's approach to last year's. But I, I still personally lean Foden in terms of who I think is the better player who's more able to contribute to, to goals and assists in the attack. But Grealish, I think, especially when you think about how much City paid for him, and that wouldn't have happened if Pep didn't think there was a way to get him integrated into this team. Grealish is going to have a big role, and, and one game where he's maybe not at his best against Liverpool is not really going to change that, in my view. I think, Joe, they need to put Grealish at left back because there's not much depth there past Joe Cancelo these days. Is there? Pep usually is a, a man with many fullbacks. But maybe yeah, we've, we've kind of reached the, the opposite side of that arc of Pep buying up all the fullbacks now. There's not a ton of, of depth at left back. Also, did anybody else do a double take? I knew Joao Cancelo had the number seven. Did anybody else oh, do a double yep. take and think, what is Raheem <laughs> yep, Sterling doing wrong. back there? What is happening? I uh, I had to sort of rub my eyes in a little bit and get back into the game after I realized that. I'm not going to police the numbers, although, Graham, I do think there is an argument that I this am. needs to be policed. Yeah. But um, yeah. that, that took me a second there. Yeah, don't love that. Did love uh, Tiago Dean, Tiago things. Uh, I think... Uh, Taylor mentioned his contribution in that first goal. That floated ball over to Salah was just beautiful. I also enjoyed Haaland's in that 96, 97 minute miss. The little grin he gave afterwards as if to say, I missed today, but tomorrow I'm still going to be better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, let's, let's not worry about this. And lest we forget that uh, City did lose the Community Shield. And I believe the first game last season, but it worked out all right for them. So we can't read too much into this one. Uh, so that was the Community Shield. Let's give a little bit of attention to the DFL Super Cup in Leipzig. Bayern Munich 5, RB Leipzig 3. Goodness me, Mane off the mark in this one. Sadio Mane uh, getting Bayern's second goal. Um, Robert Lewandowski, Graham, might not be missed too much on this evidence. Yeah, it, it wasn't bad from, from Bayern Munich and not bad in, in terms of the overall entertainment of this game. Eight goals. I thought RB Leipzig also offered a lot and there was a point in the second half where it seemed like Bayern Munich had kind of run away with it and then Leipzig came roaring back and I probably would have watched this match anyway given it's Bayern Munich versus RB Leipzig but I was particularly interested because I wanted to see how Nagelsmann would set up his team and as far as I could tell for large periods of the match it was a 4-2-2-2. I always have to make sure that I've uh, counted all the twos there hmm. that was the formation that he he used which isn't too surprising given this is what Nagelsmann used at RB Leipzig but it's just it's still very novel to see Bayern Munich play in that shape in that way because they've been a 4-2-3-1 team for pretty much the the last five years maybe even longer than that and, and Manny and Serge Gnabry seem to be playing through the middle as the front two with Musiala and Thomas Muller in behind and it it worked very well there was a lot of fluidity a lot of movement quick passing on the defensive side though Slightly less impressive. I thought Matthias de Ligt had a very difficult debut. He's only been there two weeks and this was his first match. So we're, n we're not drawing any solid conclusions just yet. On top of that, this is a, this is a new system for, Bar for Bayern Munich and they didn't afford their defence much protection. So maybe he was set up to fail. But he uh, it was a chaotic performance and there was one goal in particular where he starts out on the right. He gets beaten by his man. He's chasing back towards the box. Then he gets dragged all the way over to the left, too far to the left. Then he has to quickly change direction because Silva's cut it back and he can't do that in time. And Silva scores at the near post. And that sort of just summed up his performance. It was a little bit all over the shop. Indeed. Um, Joe, do Bayern win the league in April, in March, February? When does it happen this year? 
March. Yeah. Well, okay. Locking up the league, we'll say April, but I think they're going to have a, a really good handle on it by March. It, it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see how this Bayern Munich team does change, and Graham's laying out some good points about some of the early signs we're seeing now from Julian Nagelsmann. They still just have so much talent, and they have a massive talent advantage over Dortmund. They have a, a pretty large talent advantage over Leipzig and the rest of the Bundesliga as well. I enjoyed Taylor's conversation with Manuel Veith. Uh, last week, was that Taylor? I don't remember this one, but either way, a lot of good conversation about what Bayern Munich needs and what's been happening at the club. There's still some some rocks left to be turned over for Bayern. There's still some things left to happen, but nothing changes for me in the Bundesliga, certainly not in terms of the title winner this year. Yeah, a good entertaining game. Eight goals, as we say, maybe a good indicator of the quality of German soccer we're going to be treated to this year. A um, couple of things that caught my eye. The center circle. Graham, did you notice that it was a sponsored center circle? Very, very subtly. It had um, the logo. I didn't. Uh, well, the logo of a certain German automaker um, okay. was subtly painted within the center circle. I'd never seen that happen in a game before, but it obviously fits the hmm. the round circle. Taking, with the... Uh, taking the lead from the MLS's back, back baby. bubble tournament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Exactly Innovators. That. Yeah, oh. exactly. Yeah. Uh, trailblazing in South Florida was MLS's back with that one. Um, and Danny Olmo. We have to talk about that incident. Yes. Graham, have at it. Oh wow! This was this might have been it was a landmark moment for British and predominantly English football this weekend. But this might have been my favourite moment of the of the whole week of the whole weekend. Um, it was it was something I don't think I've ever seen before. So let me set out what Danny Omo did did in this match. the the <laughs> The clock was running down. It's the ninety third minute. And there's, I think there's only four minutes of stoppage time. And, and Bayern Munich at that point, they have a player go down injured. They demand the ball gets played out as teams tend to. And so Danny Olmo comes over to the touchline with the ball at his feet and he places it right on the edge of the line. So everyone on the pitch thinks the game is stopped. Bayern Munich player comes off the pitch, the, the injured player who unsurprisingly wasn't that injured, comes off the pitch. Bayern Munich go over to the touchline thinking it's a throw in as we've seen so many times previously, and Lucas Hernandez picks up the ball, at which point the referee and the officials award a handball, and Leipzig have a free kick to get across into the box, which was absolute poop-housery genius. I have never seen anything like that before. And I think, Ryan, as you pointed out, the fact that the linesmen seemed to be in on it as well and didn't mention anything just made it even better. I think the linesmen should have been wearing devil horns in that instance, Graham, because he was staring intently at the ball and didn't say to Luca Hernandez, don't pick it up, don't pick it up, don't pick it up. And he did. <laughs> fantastic. I loved it. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, Tate, any more to say on this game? Or shall we wrap this gosh darn thing up and go uh, pop, a, pop a court for England again? Uh, congratulations to Bayern for winning the title. Uh, congratulations to Liverpool and Man City for fi finishing first and second in some <laughs> yeah. order. Uh, congratulations to England for uh, finishing runners-up to the U.S. at the World Cup next summer. But congratulations <laughs> to them for winning the Euros in the meantime. Okay, one of those sentences didn't sit as well with me as the others, but I shall allow it, Tay-Tay. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for joining us on this intrepid journey of a podcast once again. My pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always, sir. Right back at you, Ryan. And Graham Ruffin, I know it's rough for you to uh, to talk about England's victorious weekend, but I appreciate you all the same. Thank goodness that tournament's over. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> Listener, thank you very much. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.